do not invest in the metaverse. I know there's often a view in broadcasters in particular that you should place a bet on everything just in case and so you're ready. If this is ever going to happen, it is so far off that at a time when money is really tight, because I don't know of anybody who's got lots of spare cash at the moment, at a time when money is really tight, to spend in this space is frankly irresponsible. IMO. <laughs> DPP CEO Mark Harrison there, climbing off the fence to share his views on the metaverse. But what then are the consumer trends and innovations that media and broadcast companies really do need to care about? Hello and welcome to the DPP podcast. I'm Edward Qualtro, Editorial Director here at the DPP, and I'm pleased to introduce to you some discussions about what trends in consumer electronics really mean for the media, broadcast and entertainment industry. At the beginning of each year, Mark Harrison travels to the Consumer Electronics Show, the biggest trade show of any kind in the world. And Mark goes to Las Vegas, so you don't have to. Mark's CES 2023 report is available to DPP members to download and digest, and I caught up with Mark to hear about some of those key findings. And Mark's CES report does not exist in isolation. In January 2023, the DPP hosted a breakfast briefing in London to discuss some of those key findings, where Mark was joined by Cognizant's Peter Elvidge, the Media and Entertainment Director at Cognizant, and Laura Jenner, ITV's Director of Product for Content Supply and Distribution. Laura had to run away after that session finished, but I caught up with Peter to debrief some of that conversation. And I also grabbed a word with Vubiquity Account Representative Peggy Reekman, who had contributed a question to the panel about who is best placed to be involved in tech decision making. We do have a clip of the end of Laura discussing gaming, very much with her personal hat on, but first, here are those conversations with Mark, Peter and Peggy. Welcome, Mark. Um, I've barely seen you this year, so thank you very much for agreeing to be a uh, guest and answer some questions on your own podcast. Um, <laughs> where are you at the moment and where have you been uh, very recently? Well, I have just got home from being in Las Vegas for the Consumer Electronics Show, uh, known as CES, which happens every year right at the beginning of January. And how many trips have you made to Las Vegas to start the new year? And how, which, which number was this? Well, believe it or not, this was my 14th consecutive visit to CES. 14, okay. So I, I was billing it to some people uh, who are members, which is Mark Harrison goes to CES, so you don't have to because he reports <laughs> back, which we'll learn about. My experience and engagement with CES, so my background was I was a business and technology journalist, so always on the B2B side. And I had colleagues who were the consumer tech journalists. They reviewed gadgets and phones and TVs. And I remember every January they would come back and it was connected toothbrushes and the internet of everything, internet of everything and connected adult toys. And, and it was sort of PR tech. So uh, my question is, what are some of the sort of most ridiculous or the dumbest sort of things you've seen or experienced on your CES trips? I mean, you're absolutely right. It was particularly between about 2014 and 16, which is the Internet of Things years, really, at CES. Uh, it just went daft for connected anything you care to think of. And uh, I, I really remember, for instance, there being um, a smart potty that had a tablet computer built in, you know, for the poor, bored 
toddler trying to do a poo. Uh, you know, that's when it just felt like sort of technology being just scrunched together in a completely, completely ridiculous way. Um, but I can also remember really scoffing, um, probably around about then, at uh, an electrified um, skateboard. I said, how ridiculous, you know, no self-respecting skateboarder is going to want to return home on something that's self-powered. Um, ha, ha, ha. But of course, <laughs> now the world's full of things that are very similar, certainly in the uh, electric scooters. I see electric skateboards every week, actually, on my cycles into um, central London from uh, where I'm based. So well, there, well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Maybe somebody's now got a smart potty as well. So that's the sort of cynical side um, about CES, but you do keep um, going back and clearly lots of relevant things happen there. And one of the questions I wanted to ask is, so what, what, to what extent is it really about consumer technology now? I know that's the, the title, but it's also the title of the organization as well. So what's relevant to our, to our audience? Yeah, I mean, it's long been a big frustration of mine that... Uh, you know, there's this incredible show, which is actually the world's biggest trade show of any kind, let alone just consumer tech. Absolutely vast and and therefore a really significant opportunity to kind of take the pulse on what's happening in technology. And because it's so big and it gets reported in the popular press, inevitably what happens is it gets reduced to the kind of daft, connected, such and such, when actually you've got these really seismic trends happening if you care to spend the time to to dig them out. And one of those, if you like, mega trends, kind of trends of the trends that's become evident at CES over the years is that consumer technology, as distinct from business-to-business technology, you know, the technology that enables companies to then serve the consumer. Um, you know, consumer tech itself has declined in significance in the show. To such an extent, it, it is kind of a misnomer to call it the Consumer Electronics Show. Um, in this year's report, you know, one of the things I say is that, in effect, consumer technology died in 2007, which was the year that the iPhone was launched. And what I mean by that is that the iPhone and now the smartphone more, more broadly is so much a kind of central control device for our lives that pretty much any other consumer tech is, is just connected to the smartphone. And you just can't trump the smartphone for significance as a device. So never mind how hard the marketeers might try, really now you will not get a gadget or an object uh, designed for the consumer that has enormous significance. But what we are seeing are, are bigger, broader developments in technology, such as in AI and robotics within industry that are hugely important for what's happening in the world. So let's um, 
go on to some of those trends and on your note about the smartphone i think there's a line that you'll you'll use about it being the remote control for life or i think last year it was about the ap- the aperture to which everything else is is consumed so consumer electronics peaked in um 2007 but what are the um the headlines of the the 2023 report that you're uh, able to share is a uh, is uh, succinctly as you choose to <laughs> well uh as usual i've picked out five big themes and i'll just give them to you very quickly the first the really striking one was around environmental sustainability uh it was a big theme last year but what was new this year was that it really went onto the stands of the major tech companies and it it led them not just to make big commitments about their own reductions in emissions, but to actually reframe smart home technology around energy saving and indeed cost saving. So that was a really significant development. The second thing I picked out is the one I've just referred to really, which is that the really major innovation is now happening in business to business tech rather than in business to consumer. And although business to business tech has been growing each year at CES, I would say we've now got to the point where it represents well over half of all the technology you see there. And in some parts of the show, you know, 75% of it is, is business tech. And that's where one gains some messages and insight that I think are of greatest importance for the media industry. The the third trend kind of related to uh, the first one in some respects is that there's much more focus this year on, on consumer needs, on trying to make technology for the consumer much simpler to use and to give the consumer a sense of control. So whereas in the past, what we've often had have been these very elaborate and unconvincing scenarios generally created either through animations or through actors of all these kind of wild things that are supposed to happen when we join all our tech up. This year, it's much more about get this thing to work with this thing so you can switch this thing on and switch this thing off. Much more straightforward. And that, along with environmental sustainability, I think is trying to plug into the sense right now that consumers are socially conscious, but they're also anxious and um, economically very cautious. The the fourth trend is about gaming, uh, which incredibly only became a force in the show about three years ago. That's how far behind CES was on gaming. But what was kind of amusing in a sense to see this year was that the display manufacturers have kind of forgotten that actually the thing that people do most with a TV is watch TV. Uh, They're now presenting the TV as a gaming hub, which is kind of ridiculous because at the same time, they want to suggest that the TV as as an object should become more of a a lifestyle statement, should be a, a beautiful, elegant, wireless thing in the corner of your room. And of course, that's fine for watching TV, but when gamers get going with a screen, they tend to bring a lot of peripherals to it. So um, it's a claim that doesn't really make sense, but it's it's the one that they were making. And the final trend was the one that surprised me most, which is that at this show, 
the metaverse just did not add up. Uh, the way that the show was marketed made the assumption that the metaverse would steal the show. Uh, uh, be in it was the the big headline term being used for the whole show, you know, really foregrounding immersive experience. But in reality, remarkably few companies made claims about uh, being part of the metaverse, even in their marketing hype. And, you know, if you look closely at the various kind of component parts that are required to make the metaverse work, they're actually looking very immature. They're not really much further advanced than they were in 2015 when VR was the big theme of CES. So let's just stick on that last point for uh, another question, because I remember digesting the 2022 report and it could only have been a few months after what was then Facebook had rechanged its name uh, or changed its name rather and, and put all this money into the metaverse. And it was quite striking from your visit that everything was now branded metaverse, whether it was metaverse or not. It was almost like if you can think of cloud washing and AI washing, there was metaverse yeah. washing over everything that was sort of tangential to VR or, or something else. So what, what has happened, do you think? Do you think there's a, a maturity among the marketing departments that um, it's sort of not a, the right thing to invest in, or that we can just let Meta, what, what's Facebook, take all the risk and uh, do all the experimenting and we can focus on what's relevant to consumers? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't know the answer, but it's a really intriguing one because you're quite right. Last year, it was like a kind of uh, find and replace on the word virtual, people putting metaverse on everything. And it was comical because it just happened to coincide with the, the name change that Facebook had made. Uh, but this year, there was far less of that. And it could be that, indeed, uh, marketeers could see this wasn't really appropriate in the current sort of economic and social climate. It wasn't a good look, because, because very interestingly, the global tech giants, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, who were all very big at the show again this year and have all made really big investments in what is generally known as the metaverse stack, said nothing about the metaverse. Uh, it was as if they were, they were indeed being cautious about boasting about something so far out at a time when actually consumers were very much focused on the here and now. So it could have been that. I should say, however, that we saw VR and AR headsets in numbers we just haven't seen since 2015 and 2016. There were a lot of them. But and this is the really fascinating thing. Uh, although some of the companies displaying them were linking them to the metaverse, not all of them were. And, you know, this is because for many of them, what those pieces of eyewear actually are, they are industrial headsets. They are for use in uh, manufacturing, in maintenance, in training, in design, in industry. They're not actually 
intended to be part of a consumer experience. And if you're going to claim that the metaverse exists anywhere, it's nearest to existing, in fact, in industry rather than in the consumer realm. That's really interesting. It sort of brings us back to that original thesis about a being a uh, B2B show more than a B2C show. And and perhaps also interesting that, it, you know, I think if the gamers haven't in, embraced something yet, then uh, it's probably not ready for the broader consumer market. And the gamers seem to be much more interested in so the peripherals and the TVs that you um, described earlier. Um, yeah, that's, that's a great point, actually, Edward. And I think it's a really important one because, because most... Uh, studies on the metaverse and white papers about the metaverse really talk a lot about the world of gaming and understandably so because that's currently the space that is closest to what we think of as being the metaverse but actually in reality gaming is now absolutely dominated by mobile games Um, not by Cloud gaming, which is actually proving very problematic and and developing very slowly. Now, the metaverse is not suited to mobile devices. It requires really sort of heavy lifting tech. And so it can't happen until we get cloud gaming, at the very least, as being a mainstream activity. I asked you... Uh, about some slightly daft things you'd seen at CES and you described there was the era of the internet of everything. What have been the the evolutions of the eras or the journey of the eras that you've seen at CES and which one are we in now? I remember at the CES webcast in 2022, you presented a slide and you showed that if I looked at what was being exhibited in particular years, there were certain sort of periods where it was all about either AI or the smartphone or or 3D TVs. What's the, can you describe the journey and what what position we're at at the moment? Yeah, uh, in the 14 years that I've been going, uh, I think it does break down into some quite clear eras. So between 2010, when I first went and 2013, which were the years of 3D, of second screen and a thing called a smart TV, suddenly appearing. Um, those were very much TV years. They, they were the years when the TV display and what could be on it in the way of content really was the talk of the show. It pretty much ended there for TV because 2014 to 2016, as I mentioned earlier, was the Internet of Things years that connected everything, put a sensor in anything you care to think of. And then... 2017, really with the arrival of voice assistants in the form, first of all, of of Alexa, and then the following year, the the Google voice assistant. And those were the AI years, 2017 to 2019. 2020 to 2022, I would characterize as being the service years. And, And what I mean by that was that's when really we were starting to see sort of very strongly that an individual device could no longer dominate the show. And really, consumer technology was all about the services that consumers could access through their smartphone. Now, 2023, is that still part of the service years? Or is it now time to characterise another era? 
I think it might be. I think this might be, and I don't know the title quite yet, but it's, it's something like the business to business years or the the industrial years that we're going to enter into now. And and who knows whether that will be a two or three year period or whether that's basically it from here on, but we're going to see. Okay, something to revisit in January uh, 2024. So the best way you visualize this is in the uh, the Mark Harrison trademark, DPP trademark, CES heat map. So let's try something that's slightly cruel because this is probably a bit too visual for audio and podcasting. Um, but what is the CES heat map and how would you best describe it and why should everybody want to have a look at it because it's a very striking visual thing when you do get to see them yeah it is a load of fun isn't it well so what i've done over the years is that i have given individual uh, pieces of consumer tech a a sort of hype rating if you like so i've i've looked at how much heat they generated in the show. Now, this, of course, doesn't relate to the real world. It doesn't mean this technology was hot that year. It means it was hot at CES that year. Uh, so that's why you get you know, 3D in 2010 being a 9 out of 10 uh, heat score, like really, really hot, even though, of course, it never came to anything. So for every year since then, uh, I have created these sort of heat blobs and the bigger and redder the blob, the hotter or more hyped the technology. And that's where we're able to see particular pieces of consumer tech become hot or arrive hot and then usually cool off over a period of years. So and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but then I remember from last year's heat map, because I've not seen 2023 yet. So the smartphone, for example, would be low in CES heat, but would have a very high real world um, uh, heat uh, temperature, if that's the right word. Because Yeah, yeah that's right. And, and actually, it's led me to, to do a kind of parallel cut on this now, which I began presenting in the report a couple of years ago, which is that having done my CES heat map, I then actually do a quick kind of real world assessment of the, I think it's 26 technologies that make up the heat map and given them a real world heat score as well, which is you know what actually has been happening with that technology in the real market. So you, there you get, you get some some real discrepancies and the smartphone is the most dramatic because the smartphone I've actually given a real world heat score of nine out of 10, uh, super hot for the last three years. Whereas in the show itself, it's along at the kind of two or three score level. And in fact, this year, I do believe I've scored it as low as one. So that discrepancy between the real world heat and the CES hype is a nice segue then to some of the key themes you extracted, but but for their relevance to the DPP members, to um, media professionals, whether they're in business or broadcast roles. So what, what are some of those most important messages of things that you learned and experienced at CES in Las Vegas and how that is is relevant to people in our industry? Yes, well, you'll see that in the report, I, I do give five key takeaways for media and entertainment leaders. I won't go through them all now, but I'll just mention a couple. Uh, the first is 
we have to be aware that consumers are really counting the cost. And what I mean by that is that combination of climate change, an energy crisis, economic recession, are all making consumers hyper aware of what they consume and the cost of that consumption. And that's, of course, very significant for both the way in which um, media companies present themselves publicly and about their social values, but also, of course, in their pricing model, what it actually costs to engage with them. There's going to be a lot of focus on that. And that's why, as we know, there's already a lot of talk about things like fast channels and the return of content that's funded by advertising as being a major theme for uh, the year ahead. Another big message is simply, and I'm sorry to be so bold about this, do not invest in the metaverse. A huge number of companies uh, in all sectors currently are because so many of the professional services companies, when they do their big predictions reports, are saying very explicitly that you need to get on board early with the metaverse or you might be left behind. I don't believe that's true. I believe that we are so far off from the metaverse being a reality, if indeed it ever does become one. But, you know, if it does, we're, we're at least a decade off that if you go back to my, my first takeaway, given the current economic climate and how very, very few media organisations are in a place right now where they can just throw money at things, uh, it would be very poorly advised to, to spend those precious investments on the metaverse when you could be spending them on your consumer experiences. Thank you very much, Mark. So we look forward to uh, digesting some of these um, themes and messages with our members and any major disagreements with your CES hype map and the real world heat, um, then you can get directly in contact with Mark and pitch your score to him to, to revisit. Absolutely. All this stuff's always up for debate. Hi, Peter. Thank you very much for joining the DPP podcast. Could you introduce who you are and where we are as well, maybe? Good morning. I'm Peter Elvidge. I'm uh, Media Entertainment Director from Cognizant. Uh, and we're sitting in ITV's town hall after a fantastic DPP session with Mark talking about the findings from CES. Indeed. A very good description of what's just taken place. So were there any things that Mark said because uh, I'm, I'm not going to expect you to have read and digested the full tome of Mark's CES 2023 report, but some of the things that he shared with the audience here that particularly resonated with you? Absolutely, yes. And um, you know, the, the very interesting points across, across the report. I always quite like to look at that and think, well, behind these points, are there any sort of common themes or, uh, or indeed, you know, across the research that DPP and uh, we've done with the economist as well are there any common sort of themes or topics that link the the points together and actually one of those uh one of the ones we did see was around sort of technology um or rather operationalizing technology so you know one of the themes in the in the ces report which resonated was around uh consumer experience and putting the consumer front and center 
but obviously in, in optimizing the con- sort of consumer experience, that nearly always means for the media companies taking on more, having more complicated systems, more complicated technology, and putting in place the sort of process and people around that that can scale and, and deliver the experience that consumers need. So, so for me, I think it's the, the the particular outputs from the CS report are really interesting, but it's really the the kind of the the deeper themes behind it where I think there are real opportunities for media companies to to improve. And yourself and Laura and Mark had a good um, back and forth with the audience at one point, and it was about media and entertainment organisations of rushing off to implement disruptive new emerging technologies uh, and when that is the right thing to do and when that's the wrong thing to do. Can you distill and remember sort of some of the, the, like the, the content of that discussion? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So... Yeah, I think the, the the conversation started around you know this, this, the CEO of an organisation coming back with a, a fantastic idea or or new shiny bit of technology that they want to implement in their organisation, and, and really, uh, I think we all agreed that that's probably the wrong place to start, and it's probably better to start thinking about the the problem that's really that really needs to be solved, and then how best to to solve that. And one of the things that came out of our research with the Economist in you know looking at how organizations uh, bring technology you know bring value from technology is probably that in some cases the sort of the, the middle management layers of organizations have not maybe being as strong as they could around joining up the the understanding of tech from the lower levels of the organization and, and sending that message back up to the high levels around actually you know ha- you know showing what they've already got, what could be optimized, what could be done. So it's become a bit maybe top down when there is a bottom up message that could be getting through. So I guess the takeaway from me after that was actually maybe we all need to work harder at looking at that kind of middle management layer and how that can be used as a conduit of ideas back up to the leadership of an organization as well. Thank you. And this is, I think, tangential to that middle management. Was You also had a discussion about cross-functional teams and bringing different not silos, but different departments together. What was your take on sort of the the positive and negative, and the, almost the symptom and the cause of is that a good thing or a bad thing that media companies, um, to distill the conversation, are perhaps better at some of their uh, than other industries at a, at, from a benchmarking perspective at having these cross-functional teams. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when I first looked at some of the research that we had done with The Economist and, and saw that media was one of the best performers in, in sort of cross-functional, cross-silo team collaboration, I was trying to give myself a sort of pat on the back on, on behalf of the whole industry that we've done really well there. But when I really started to think about it, I actually started to question that because I thought, well, maybe that's actually a symptom that we've We've we have absolutely had to bring you know different teams together to to solve a problem, but actually maybe it's because we haven't structured our teams or the way of working or the process the right way in the first place. So it's actually a symptom or a bit of a, a sort of sticking plaster on what we really need to do to make a sort of scalable, um, future-proof way of working, if you like. And I think. I don't think it's necessarily consistent across the whole industry, but I definitely think it's absolutely vital that, you know, and Laura had these points way more eloquently than I can ever uh, communicate them around organizing a, a, you know, a team or of cross, cross-functional skills around a problem, which, you know, the, the kind of the success or failure of that of that of that sort of solution can be measured. Um, but I think the, the, for me, the key thing is, you know, that, that, that group of people becomes the the team and and those 
technical people, all the other stakeholders involved in that problem need to be embedded in that in that team permanently around that product, around that output, and accountable collectively for for the problem that they're that they're working on. Thank you. Yeah, Laura did describe some great things, and I think her discussion around gaming was really interesting. Her background of working for magazines, uh, dis- discussing uh, com- video, computer gaming, mobile, uh, even. Uh, chess and other things is really interesting. Um, can we have a quite a quick word on the work you are doing with the Economist, and then if you can share, maybe what's what are the what are the plans with who else you're bringing on board? Because we're not entirely sure what it looks like yet, but we've got some exciting plans coming up, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. So the the, the work we did with the Economist was a was based on a survey of around two thousand senior execs across eight industries and uh, ten ten countries, uh, really looking at businesses. Uh, you know, readiness for tom- readiness for tomorrow, uh, uh, based on where they are today, to some extent. So, it's uh, it's giving um, organisations a, a measure of how prepared they are for the future across loads of different pillars like business fundamentals, technology, sustainability, talent, etc. Uh, and I guess what we've kind of found from that is, you know, the media industry is is actually leading in some areas. Um, so, for example, we're very, very, very good at uh, at technology. Um, implementation, if you like, and actually we're almost one of the last or one of the lowest ranked industries at actually getting value out of technology, so technology adoption and so on. We have some other fantastic highlights as an industry where we really recognize the value of talent and employee engagement, um, motivation, satisfaction, absolutely, you know, we are leading in that in that space. But then the flip side of that coin, we're really, really far from the sort of frontier on talent development, skills, training, investment in growing talent. Um, so I think there's a, you know, there's a kind of a, a lesson to be learned there around how you know there's still more investment needed in our in our talent side of our business as well. Thank you, and I'm going to bring it back to consumer technology very briefly because I've asked a few people this recently. Uh, so it's useful that Mark has covered this in his report and he shared the the image of the heat map earlier. Are there any emerging disruptive tech innovations that you're particularly excited about? And that could be Peter as a consumer uh, from a personal perspective that's going to be life changing. Or you could be thinking with your cognizant hat on, you know, your professional hat um, and your focus on the media and entertainment sector. <laughs> I think Mark laid it very, very clearly in the in the thing. Let's not invest in uh, in metaverse. That was the was the first one. So I think that's not the answer. First and foremost, I think for me the the you know this the next year professionally is in many cases a year of. Uh, of optimization so it's about and you know it's about looking at the the technology we've got in place how do we get value from that especially given the sort of macroeconomic conditions we're in how do we really operationalize what we've got and get maximum value from it and i think on the on the consumer side mark again said it perfectly probably consumer technology peaked a long time ago with 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 the iphone uh, and now what we're really talking about is how do we bring innovation onto platforms that are fundamentally built on 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 that um i think that's good for our industry fundamentally because i think you know it it sort of tells us there's a long way or rather we've got a lot of opportunity to build on the platforms that are there um but i think it's probably going to be more evolutionary than than revolutionary over the next uh, sort of 12 months or so for sure i think you're right and it's a theme that's come out of our work and actually we had some i'll uh, i'll share off off recorded conversations I've had with Mark and Rowan recently, which was the theory runs that efficiency and optimization are no longer dirty words. If you look to the mid 2000s, 
it was almost as if CTOs found a language in a vernacular. It was all about transformation. And, and they were right because there were these technologies. It was based around the cloud and it implemented a whole new software stack. But now we're in a period where it's almost transformation has become the dirtier word and organizations are uh, maybe it sort of means everything and nothing at the same time. And actually now is the time to be um, efficient and optimize what you already have in your organization. Probably last question then. So the theme, the big theme that Mark pulled out was around uh, sustainability and his belief that actually these are now quite sincere commitments. Is that something that you recognize in the work you're doing with what you see with um, customers? Yeah, and I think customers and also the, the, the research we've done and actually the fact that that does give us some view of some good achievements over the last 12 months so for example you know we've the the research shows us that we've got uh very very good if you like acknowledgement of the importance of sustainability in media organizations which to some extent is uh is is not um what's the word uh substantive in itself but then over the last 12 months actually very very good progress around things like energy reduction, um, moving to renewable energy and so on. And I was sort of joking during the session around, I wonder how much of that's been driven more because people knew that energy was going to get more expensive than necessarily because they saw it as a, as a good way of reducing their emissions. But it's a good step. Uh, but it's one of the only areas where uh, the, the research we've done shows that, we're, that our industry is sort of close to the kind of the, the frontier of best practice across industries as a whole. So, so I think we are going to see... Um, you know more of the more substantive action coming behind some of the public commitments over the next year for, for sure not only because it helps with sustainability but often i think in many cases it helps drive out cost as, as well at the same time if done done properly so i think we will see more of that um i think our you know we're, we're also seeing people i think with the panasonic point that, that mark has you know organizations realizing that it's not just their their sort of direct in scope uh impact on on sustainability it's it's the it's the broader impact they have across the world through their ability to influence others through the way that their products are used by others um so taking responsibility for for the broader impact of their uh of their activities i think is 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 important and because a few people have done that now it's going to become increasingly important and done by others as well hopefully thank you and uh to let uh, listeners know Peter mentioned earlier um, when they were benchmarking media against other sectors he sort of got got a bit competitive with some of his colleagues maybe who lead other industries within Cognizant about how media compares with certain things like tech adoption and other areas so I like the idea that yourself and your um, sort of peers who lead different industry verticals at Cognizant are going to get competitive around sustainability uh, at some point and then you can um, rank yourselves on whose industry is doing better. Thank you very much for joining, Peter. And yeah, we look forward to um, yeah the work we're going to do in future as well around um, uh, trends and themes in, in tech, media and entertainment. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining the DPP podcast. The hardest questions first. Who are you and where are we? And maybe why are we here as well? Okay, I'm Peggy Rickman from Ubiquity and we are at the ITV Town Hall in Grayson Road for the CES briefing. 
Thank you very much. So we heard a presentation from Mark Harrison, then we had a discussion with Laura Jenner, who's the Director of Product at ITV, and Peter Elvidge from Cognizant. Were there any themes from what was discussed and what Mark presented that sort of resonated with you and sort of challenges that you have at Ubiquity and you think are facing the sector? I wouldn't want to go as far as going within Ubiquity, but I think just generally within companies, and Laura was touching on that, that often she was talking about her experience about CEOs or other leadership members coming in with new shiny technology and saying, oh, we're going to use that now, and then the engineers having to implement it. And I think we have often industry-wide the problem that the people who actually make the choices or have buying decisions are not necessarily the people using it. So I think often there's a bit of a discrepancy between knowing what's good or what, what would work or actually choosing the right thing. So she was saying that often the engineers do have an insight about technology. So she was suggesting about getting those people in, making decisions, talking to the middle management. I think Peter was making that suggestion as well to have the middle management actually being involved in buying decisions and I think that would be quite good to have a general level especially in big companies where you can't have the everyday interaction. Thank you very much and there was a light-hearted moment when I think Laura and Peter suggested don't let your CEO read the in-flight magazine too much or attend trade conferences and finally are there any emerging technologies that you're excited about maybe for the impact they could have either from a consumer tech perspective or for their implementation in sort of industry? Well I think there were two topics talked about so the one is the metaverse where I'm still a bit apprehensive about what it actually is. I remember at the leaders briefing there was one talk where it was quite interesting how they used it for customer meetings and for recreating situations so I'm interested to see how that goes but I'm not too invested in it. And the other thing is about generally data and AI and to see how that can help companies to be more efficient, to reduce touch points and overlays. And I kind of hope that that might help us be more, be more fluent and be more effective. So that's what I'm most excited about, I would say. Thank you very much. And everybody can read Mark's opinions on the metaverse in the CES 2023 report. And he is not ambivalent about where he stands on uh, the uh, opportunities of the technology. Mark Harrison, Peter Elvidge and Peggy Reekman there discussing the DPP's CES report and recent breakfast briefing. I teased at the start of the episode that the other speaker on the day at the DPP event was ITV's Laura Jenner. Since gaming was highlighted by Mark as such a key trend in his report, Laura was an ideal contributor to discuss those consumer trends. And here is a short clip of Laura's personal views and experience from prior to her ITV days about just how prominent the gaming industry is. In a previous life, I used to uh, first uh, be a, a kind of on the editorial side and then relaunched and ran GameSpot UK here, obviously in the UK, it's a big company. Now, even in the early 2000s, we had stats that showed us that one in 12 men in the UK, and it was men, our audience was 96% male at that point, was reading our site, right? So when wow. people told me that gaming was not mass, I was like, really? Yeah. Ask your brother, your dad, your cousin, your uncle, get brave, ask your aunt, um, and see whether people are using gaming. Now the gamer feels like a label, it feels dismissive, some slightly derogatory, and people are like, I'm not a gamer, and you say to them, really, okay? Have you ever played Candy Crush? Mm. Oh yeah, 
Angry Birds? Of course. What else would I do? <laughs> did you have Snake on your Nokia? Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you ever played Scrabble online? Oh, yeah, I do that with my you know, uncle every weekend. Welcome to gaming, folks. And so uh, to me, gaming has always been huge and completely shoved aside by other, sorry, media, yeah. where numerically it's bigger. It's more people, it's more yeah. money than most of these other forms of entertainment. Yeah. And also, you know, that, the site I was running in, what, 2006, the kids were 15, 16 on average. They're not anymore, but they're still gaming. They're still got, and now they've got better TVs and better Xboxes or Playstations or whatever their um, unit of choice is. They automatically bought those things for their kids who now have Nintendo yeah. Switches or whatever else. So I think gaming is such a part of life that it, I don't understand why it's marginalized. When you've got footballers complaining at their scores on FIFA, yeah. right? And when they look, when you see a footballer's house, I have two 14 year old boys for context here, they have these huge projector screens, it's amazing, you think home cinema, no, 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 FIFA. Yeah. That's what they're using it for. It's completely normal and part of life. And it's funny that TV manufacturers have just woken up to the fact that they're another screen that's used. Um, yes, people use computer screens or whatever else for gaming, but it's just a huge part of the industry. And no one should forget it or marginalize it or put it in neon and be like, it's for kids. No, it's not. It's for everyone. And there's huge yeah. money in it. People will spend on that where they won't spend elsewhere. Thank you then to Peter, Peggy and Laura, and of course for Mark for taking one for the team and saving you a trip to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. And we'll have more hobnobbing, hype vetting and musings next month in another episode of the DPP podcast.